0: This is a recording made at the Chapel of the Open Book under the covering title of the Free roma We are now approaching the closing sections of this study and are concentrating our attention on the last three chapters, three or four chapters of the Book of the Revelation. It is our custom at this meeting to read together a portion of Scripture and those of you who are listening to this recording, if you care to join us, Will you switch off for a little time while we read together, now will you listen carefully, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 then over to chapter 9 verse 24 to chapter ten, thirteen. 13. Before we take up our study in the closing chapters of the book of the Revelation I want just to point out one or two features in the passage we've just read. Coming to chapter three once more, there is no doubt about the foundation upon which all rests, and that is Christ. But although a person may be solidly resting on the foundation, that is to say, turning it into doctrinal language, he is a believer, he is saved, he is justified, he's forgiven. In fact, at the end of the chapter, It says, ye are Christ, and Christ is God. There's no doubt that we are dealing with Christians, believers. And yet, when it comes to their works, being tested, they are so tested as to be tried by fire, and they shall suffer loss, although they themselves shall be saved. Then we turn to the chapter 9, and we find that we are here in the context of running a race, and the, uh, alternation between all and some has got to be watched. All run in a race, but all do not win. It's a very character of a race that, if you enter it, you, you know full well that some are coming out first and some second, and, well, you'll be, uh, that's also ran, you see. Otherwise, it's no race, no element of prize or reward about it. And at the end of this chapter 9, the Apostle says, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, now that word preached is to herald. And inasmuch as he's talking about a Greek sport, and there was actually a herald in the Greek sports, and a part of his work was to announce those who were in the list he says, you see, it's possible that after I've held the others, I myself should be disqualified, not cast away. Disqualified. So you've always got to remember that the moment you're off the ground of sheer salvation and on the ground of service, there is this possibility. Now he says, I'd like you to look back over the past, the history of Israel. Notice, they were all baptized into Moses. Not some of them. They all ate the same spiritual meat, not some of them. They all drank the same spiritual drink. And then it said, but with many of them, God was not well pleased." So here's a redeemed people that never went back to Egypt again. God's people, redeemed by precious blood, who did not go so far as to get into the land of promise. Now, it cannot mean that they are unsaved people because Moses was prevented from going into the land of promise. And yet, he'll be numbered among the ones in the glory later on. So, we've got to be prepared to discover what we're going to see written largely in the book of the Revelation. That it's one thing to say unto him that loved us and loosed us from our sins in his own blood and then to sit back and say, well, now I'm right for the crown. Oh, no. The are possibility in connection with that. Well, that's just a word or two here. Look at the peculiar things that are listed out to characterize this type of people, idolatry, committing fornication, and various other horrible things. And then notice on two occasions, they were destroyed, verse 9. They were destroyed, verse 10. These are God's people, so they're thus treated. Now you say, well, I don't think very much of your readings this evening. Friends, I didn't write the Bible. I'm only here to open it. But it's because we may not have this in our mind, as we should, that we've invested some features in the book of the Revelation with warning. And therefore, we want just to face the fact that God has written this for our guidance, our warning, and we mustn't turn the edge because it doesn't quite suit our book. Shall we now come to the book of the Revelation once more? Now, in the ordinary way, we have sacrificed a certain amount of time in these meetings in order that we may get a bit, bit better quality of voice. But this evening, I've asked our brother, Mr. Ramsey to go back and have a little bit less quality in voice so that I can have another quarter of an hour or twenty minutes. Otherwise, I shall have to do what I did last week, get halfway through and then have to the postpone it. I shan't run over the time, but we'll use it to the very best. Now I hope you don't say to yourself, oh dear, oh dear we're going to have it all over again yes we are friends, just to link up, but very quickly and then go on. Now what I try to make, the point I try to make first of all last week was a question to whom was the book of the Revelation written? Well the answer is John to the seven churches what thou seest, write in a book, and send to the seven churches. And when that book is nearly completed, in the last chapter of the book of the Revelation, he's back on the same subject. Verse 16. And I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. So you see, the whole book of the Revelation, not merely chapters 2 and 3, But chapter 4, chapter 13, chapter 20, chapter 21, they're all written to that people. And they were written to a peculiar character in that people, to him that overcometh. So that we are not to look upon the book of the Revelation as containing all that we need to know about the end. For it doesn't reach the end. When we finish the book of the Revelation, we shall have to go to another scripture which says, then cometh the end, long way beyond the time limit of the book of the Revelation itself. But there are things in this book which impinge upon this overcomer in the dreadful times that will take place when the man of sin, the son of perdition, is wielding his authority. The next thing is, I want to pick up, this word overcomer and take it a stage further than I was able to do last time. Last time we noticed that each church, without exception, uh, it was addressed and then to him that overcometh will I grant this or grant that or grant the other. And I would remind you that to the overcomer, a certain promise is made which is fulfilled within the pages of the book of the Revelation. Let's make that our own in case any are not quite sure. Chapter 2. The overcomer is addressed in verse 7. And I will give to eat of the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And you read chapter 22 and you've got the paradise of God with the tree of life and the things after the healing of the nations. So there's a link between the promise in that church and the things which are written for his guidance. And then if you look at the next church verse 11 to him that overcometh him that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death and in Revelation 20 it says verse 6 blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection on such the second death hath no power But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years and the second death occurs again at the end of chapter 20 and once more in um, the next chapter. So that we have got to be watchful that we don't hand over the second death to the ungodly in some general judgment which is not in view here and take away this word which was actually used by Christ as an encouragement to the overcomer. We'll look at this again presently. And then if you'll come a bit further down this chapter You'll find at the end of the chapter verse 27 to him that overcometh he shall rule them with a rod of iron. Now that links on with Revelation 19 when it says he's coming to make war and to rule the nations with a rod of iron and tread the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. So this is covering the millennium. Ruling with a rod of iron. That's the character which is brought here. When you come to the next church and in verse 5 it says him that overcometh, I will not blot out his name of the book of life. Well again you see, that's a strange thing, isn't it? If we are saved by grace, saved by redemption, justified, accepted in the beloved, well what's the good of telling us that we shall be blotted out of the book of life if it means eternal life and the gift of God? I could turn round to an angel heaven and say, thank you for nothing. While Romans 8 is written, who's going to lay anything to my account? Who is going to condemn me? Nobody. Well, then I must be on some other ground. This book of life must be some other book. You've got to face it, friends. It's in your Bible as well as mine. It either means salvation, and if it does, well, we are a miserable lot, but it, there's a possibility that after you're saved, you may be lost again. But that isn't salvation. This is to an overcomer. So the overcomer might have his name blotted out of the book. Well, it's an overcomer's book then, unless my logic is at fault. And so we might go on right through these. The last one, oh, there's one I must refer to, verse 12. He will have written upon him the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. Now, that's referring to Revelation 21. I saw the holy city, and it's only called New Jerusalem elsewhere in these two places. What a link there is. And then the last one, verse 21, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I overcame. So every one of these promises are limited to the book of the Revelation itself, and not to be enjoyed outside. And when you turn to the last chapter of the book of the Revelation, you'll find that only rewards are limited, but punishments. Verse 18. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues which are written in this book. How are you going to do that? The plagues in this book are specific plagues. Water turned to blood, sun, moon, and stars detected, and all sorts of awful things, but they're going to be added to this person. That wants a bit of doing, doesn't it? Unless we're going to limit it to the book itself and its uh, pages. And in verse 19, if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life, and out of the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. So it's limited, you see. It's specific the Book of Life, the Holy City, the things written in this book. Now this emphasis on the word overcomer is not only to be found in the seven churches, but I want to pick these out too. The next one comes in chapter 12. There's a good deal of of, uh, writing has gone before this, but here's a special moment. When war has taken place in heaven, and Satan has been cast down with his angels. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, this is verse 10, now is come salvation and strength of the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb. And by the word of their testimony and they love not their lives unto the death. There's the overcomer directly in contact with Satan and his fallen angels. And then the last reference to the overcomer is right beyond the millennium, Right beyond the great white throne. Right into the new heavens and the new earth. Revelation 21 Verse 5 says, Behold I make all things new. Verse 1 says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And verse 7 says, He that overcometh shall inherit all things. So the overcomer is not limited to the book of the, to the millennium. There's an inheritance to the overcomer that's stated long after the millennium's over. Now, we should have to come to this next verse 8. I hope we'll get through in time. But do you remember I called your attention to the warning in 1 Corinthians, to certain awful apostate sins that brought down the judgment of God on those who fell in the wilderness? Well, look at these words in verse 8. In contrast to the overcomer, that's the fearful, and the unbelieving, and the abominable, and murderers, and whorlangers, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars, shall have their part in the lake which furnishes hard in Princeton, which is the second death. Which is the second death. Oh dear, oh dear, you say, the second death was something which God said that the ones who lived and reigned with Christ who were kings and priests unto God, they wouldn't be touched by the second death, but here's the other people who are. These are a pair. Those who are and those who are not touched by it. Don't you see what we've got to do? God has promised that the, the ones that overcome will not be those who are the fearful and the unbelieving and the abominable. We've handed that all, all over to the godless world, but it's written concerning those who fail to make the grave. And in, next time, instead of saying uh, the second death, it says at the end of verse, uh, at the end of 27, and there shall be no wise entry to it anything that defileth neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. So the book of life comes in over against the second bit. It's all tied up together, and we must translate them so that we do not do despite to any one passage. Now there's another reference to overcoming, which I want to introduce. This is from another angle. Uh, Chapter 5, verse 5. Chapter 5, verse 5. And one of the elders said unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath overcome. That word prevailed is the same word. So we might as well know it. He has overcome. So they overcame because he overcame. He has overcome, prevailed, to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And then, will he open those seals, chapter 6, verse 2, And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him at a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. But this is the false Christ, followed by death and hell and plague, a travesty of the white horse, that is reserved until Revelation 19. But here's a conqueror that goes forth, and you will find that that is true for the period chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 7. And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascended out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them. So you see, they're being warned, it's not going to be a rosy time in that three years and a half of dreadful persecution. These were overcome, but they had triumphed, and presently they raised from the dead and caught up to heaven. Then again in verse 13, verse 7, chapter 13, sorry, verse 7, and it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them and power was given him over all kindreds, tongues and nations but that was of course a limited period and so we have a series of these the references to the overcoming chapter 17 verse 14 will conclude this little bit together and these shall make war with the land, and the land shall overcome them for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. Well, now we must pass on to other features. Will you come back with me, first of all, to the first chapter? The first chapter of the book of the Revelation, because there we have a a vision of the ascended, glorified Christ, and he makes a statement at the end, just before he gives commission to write. He says in verse 18, I am he that liveth, and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. and have the keys of hell and of death. I've got the key. Now, what are keys for? Well, they're to open and shut. Well, obviously, in case you don't know that keys are for opening and shutting, we'll look at chapter 3, verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write: These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. That's the key. And then if you'll notice in chapter 9, And the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven, unto the earth and to him was given the key of the bottomless pit and he opened it and in chapter 20 of course you're anticipating this one there's another angel and he receives the key of the bottomless pit and he shuts it because Satan has kept there for a thousand years so here we have a key which does its office it It opens and it shuts you know you say to yourself now what's all this about where have we come to now well Perhaps you've anticipated, I don't know. But look at the end of chapter 20. Verse 14. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Now, you see, that passage has been taken, clean out of its context, no reference to anything else, and this is said to be the destruction of death and hell. Completely. What it doesn't fit because you'll discover when we're looking at the new heaven and new earth which is waiting for us or oh, I don't mean to say waiting for us but the study of it is next time or presently i better be a bit guarded we shall find that there is death in the new heaven and the new earth period still there and if you don't believe that listen to this then cometh he end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom for God even the Father and he will put down all rule and all authority And he must reign till all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that should be destroyed is death. That's right beyond the book of the Revelation altogether. So it's utterly false to say that when death and hell were cast into the lake of fire, it was to absolutely annihilate and destroy them. You say, what was it for? Don't you see, the first chapter says, I have the keys of death and of hell. And when I shut, they're shut. And when I open, they're open. This is not the destruction, this is turning the key on them for the time being. This is a a temporary thing to do with administration of this kingdom and rewards and all that, and nothing to do with the final judgment that all ages along the road after this. So we may say that just as Satan was put into the bottomless pit for a thousand years and the key turned on him, then those who are associated with him, hell and death, they are put into the same lake of fire, key turned on them, until their work is done, or till some purpose necessitates the opening once more. Don't think I've got all the answers, friends, but I'm trying to so piece it together that I don't contradict what some other part of the scripture says. And if I can manage that, that's almost a miracle when you come to think of what's been done with some of these passages. Well now, uh, the next thing we must do is to come back to chapter twenty uh, Revelation twenty and consider no, I'll have to sort this out a bit more, friends. Wait a minute, it's this um, it's this question of the book of life. Uh somebody has raised a point, and I'm very glad they have, because I think it may be voicing the feelings of others. You may remember that last time we mentioned that the problem about this book of life. And I mentioned it again. If the book of life means your eternal salvation, then your eternal salvation is, a, is insecure because God has said it's possible that you may be blotted out of the book of life. Then I suggested to you that we may be off the beat over that. When we read of those who suffered And the Lord said to to one of the churches, Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life, and you shall not be blotted out of the book of life, or you shall not be touched of the second death. That's to a person who is not merely a believer and sure of salvation, but who's sure of a crown of life. It's the crown of life that was the, the idea, you see. Well, then turning to other parts of Scripture, or, in the first case, the um, the, book, the book of life in the book of the Revelation is associated with a period from the foundation of the world. You remember, there are two occasions. The book of the life of the land slain from the foundation of the world. And it's quite a problem to know whether it was the land that was slain before the foundation, or since the foundation of the world, or whether the lamb who has since been slain wrote that book from the foundation of the world. But my point is this. It links the book of life. With a period called. From the foundation of the world. Now you say. What's that got to do with it? Well our Saviour tells us. And it's recorded in Luke's gospel. That upon this generation shall come the blood. Of all the martyrs that have suffered. Beginning with Abel. Since the foundation of the world. Right the way along. So is the book of martyrs. And you know friends. I can venture to tell you the name that heads the list in the Lamb's Book of Life. You say you can? Yes. Abel. Abel. He was the first one whose blood was shed by the Cain side of the story and the battle was on. He didn't look much of an overcomer, did he? Cain looks as though he was the overcomer, but you mustn't be taken by these superficial. When it says the lion of the tribe of Judah was the overcomer, John says, I turn to look. To look at what? To see the lion. But he never saw a lion. I saw a lamb. And not only a lamb, I saw a lamb as it had been slain. It's a slain lamb, it's the overcomer, friends, not a roaring lion. The overcomer who seems to go down, he's following in the steps of the mighty victor who by dying slew him that had the power of death. This all seems topsy-turvy from the rules and the guidances of the things of this world, but the world is topsy-turvy so it's all in harmony. Well now, I I drew your attention that the only reference outside the the book of uh, the Revelation to the book of life is found in Philippians. Philippians it's not found in Ephesians where you have chosen in him before the foundation of the world and by grace he has saved through faith and that of himself but the gift of God. It comes in Philippians which stresses service and conflict and running a race with a prize at the end with a possibility of missing it as well as a possibility of winning it. It gives you uh, illustrations of those who were of this Martha spirit and the Epaphroditus is one of them in chapter 2. Verse 30, because for the work of Christ he was nigh unto death, not regarding his life. And then, others are mentioned in chapter 4, verse 3, Clement, and with other my fellow labourers, not my fellow believers, but fellow labourers, whose names are in the book of life. Well, now there was a legitimate objection raised. In chapter 3, Paul himself says, but he didn't know. He wasn't sure that he was going to win the prize. Well, how was he sure that Clement and these other fellow labourers had their names in the book of life? Well, I think, friends, we've just slipped a little bit there, just a little bit off the uh, right track, because this, he said, my name's in the book of life, said Paul, otherwise I wouldn't be running the race at all. I'm on the list. I'm in the list, so I'm there. But he said, I'm not, I'm not, um, uh, saying that I don't know my name's in the book of life. He says, I don't know whether it's going to last in the book of life. That's the problem in the Revelation. Not that it isn't there, but will it be erased? So, I drew your attention in reading 1 Corinthians chapter 9, lest after I had heralded others and said their names in the book, I myself shall be disqualified and have my name taken out of the book. Oh yes. It, 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 uh, and uh, if you say, how could Paul know whether anybody was in the book of life uh, uh, running for the prize? Well, you say, how did Paul know that anybody was in the book of life? In the matter of salvation. But he told the Thessalonians, he said, knowing, beloved, your election of God. How do you know that, Paul? Have you seen the book of life? No, he said, but I saw the way they received the gospel and how that him afterwards. So he said, well, I see this man valiantly standing Building his life, it needs be, for Christ, always as I know his name's in the book of life, and now I pray it may stop there. But Demas is mentioned, associated with Paul, When the man who was associated with Paul in the days of Nero was a bit of a hero, I wasn't rhyming it when it's come, but you remember what it says in the last? Demas hath forsaken me. Demas' name was in the book of life, he was in the running, and I mean, his name's out. Doesn't mean Demas was lost forever but he just failed, you see. So, it's still in harmony that the book of life would be the book of martyrs, the book uh, of names of those who loved not their lives unto the death and were given the crown of life as a consequence. Well, now, I must get to the next point. Otherwise, once more, the green light or the orange light will be going up. First of all, in chapter 20, it says, In verse 6, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. Now, if you will look to uh, chapter 21. um, Verse 4. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, there shall be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. That's the same word as the word first. It doesn't say the first things are passed away, because you would say, "Well, what do you mean, first things? Going right back to the beginning, Genesis 1 verse 1, no, they don't pass away. It's the former of the things that I've been speaking about. It's a group that's in mind all the time. So when he says the first resurrection, he doesn't mean the first resurrection that has ever taken place or ever will take place. It's the former of two. Well, then you say to me, or you say to yourself, oh, if this is the former of two, what's the second one? Well, it's chapter 20, the rest of the dead. Why would you say, no, the rest of the dead means all the rest of the dead that have ever been? So who said so. Well, then, of course, you, if you say, well, I say so, well, say, well, that may be your opinion, but that's not necessarily the truth of this passage. So, first of all, let's look at this word, former, just to canvas it a bit wider. We'll go to the Acts of the Apostles, to the first chapter, possibly you've anticipated this already, but we'll see it for ourselves, and you will remember that I'm giving you the same word every time. Acts 1, verse 1. The former treatise, have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach, with the implication that this is the next one. See, you're writing to the same person, and you're telling him that what you've written is the former treatise, with the idea that this is the companion to it, and that is true. When you read Luke's gospel, you find it overlaps into the Acts of the Apostles. They're a pair. Keep that in mind, with you? That the former suggests two that make a pair. Let's look at another passage. Supposing we come to the Epistle to the Hebrews. Chapter 9, verse 1. Then, verily, really the first covenant had also ordinances of a divine service and a worldly sanctuary. Now supposing you're a stickler, you say, Well, that means the first covenant and I'm going to stand by it. Say, Well, when was the first covenant made in Scripture? It's made in Genesis six with Noah and so named. That's not the covenant that's mentioned here. And there's another covenant made in chapter nine, and another covenant made in chapter fifteen, and yet another covenant made in chapter seventeen. So you see, we've got four different covenants mentioned in the book of Genesis before this covenant comes into being, and yet it's called the first. Well, it must be the first of a series, or the former of two. What was the former? The old covenant that was made with the children of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt, which they broke. And what's the second covenant? Why, well, it's the new covenant that it will make with the house of Israel and Judah and write it on their hearts. So he says this was a worldly sanctuary, carnal ordinances, but the new covenant. Oh, that's a different thing. But it's a pair. Well now you see, you see what I'm coming to. That if the former resurrection demands a second one to complete the whole lot, well, that's what we're waiting as soon as the, as soon as the, the, the book of the Revelation ends, the millennium, then we come to the great white throne and the rest of the dead. It says here in chapter 20 that the rest of the dead live not again until the thousand years are finished. There are some readings which say the rest of the dead live not till the, the thousand years are finished. Uh, but I don't think that makes any vital difference. They lived or lived again. This is the former resurrection. So the rest have to be considered. Uh, What do we understand by the word, the rest of the death? Shall we look at a few instances? Take for instance one, in uh, Romans, the 11th chapter, verse 7, and here I'm giving you, of course, the same word. Romans 11, verse 7. What then? Israel hath not obtained that which it seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blind. Well, there's no need to argue. You say, yes, I can see that. He's speaking about Israel. And then he divides Israel up into two companies. The elect, and then the rest. But it be a mad person who said, oh, no, no, the rest means the rest of the whole wide world. Nobody would do that in this passage. So be watchful when you use this word, rest. Now, let's look at the way in which they are... uh, the word is found in the revelation itself. That will be a good guide, I think. This word, the rest. Chapter 2, 24. Chapter 2, 24. But unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira. Oh, when it's added the words, so we can't go wrong. He's not speaking to the rest of the world. He was saying, I say this to you and to the rest entire time. So, finish. Chapter 3, verse 2. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die for I have not found thy works perfect before God. You say, well, that looks as though you got a wrong reference. Well, I do get wrong references sometimes. But, be watchful and strengthen the things that are the rest. Things that remain. The other, box, the other part that are left over Still dealing with one subject. Chapter 9, verse 20. It says in verse 19, Their power is in their mouth and in their tails, for their tails were like unto serpents, and they had heads, and within they do hurt. And the rest of the men, which were not killed by these plagues, yet repented not of their works. It's the rest of the men that were subject to these plagues, not the rest of the men that lived on the earth, even at that time, but those who were connected with this dreadful plague, the rest of those who were not killed, yet they repented not. And chapter 11, verse 13, and the same hour was there a great earthquake, the tenth part of the city fell, and in the earthquake were slain of men 7,000, and the remnant were affrighted, and gave glory to the God of heaven. The remnant? Oh yes, I know what the remnant is. That's the remnant of Israel. We read about them in Hosea. No, 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 no. This is just the rest of the people at that time when the earthquake frightened them. So you see, it's a limited word all the time by its context. Chapter 12, 17. And the dragon was wroth with a woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed. The rest. Because one lot had been caught up to God in his throne as the man-child, The other lot had been taken on eagles' wings to be fed for three years and a half in the wilderness, and the rest that were left that were not quite the overcomer element, yet he was after them too because they were the chosen people. They were the remnant, or the rest. Then we have 1921. And the remnant was slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse. The remnant. Who? Oh, well, this is the... the, uh, the mighty men, the captains, uh, as well as the beast, the kings of the earth and the false prophet. Some were taken and cast into the lake of fire. The, remnant, the others who were not so cast in, but the rest of them were killed with a sword. And then, lastly, chapter 20, verse 5, and the rest of the dead. Well, it means the rest of those who were in view. And it's in contrast with those who died as martyrs. They all died, you see. The martyrs died, these others died. But the martyrs, who refused the mark of the beast, they lived and reigned a thousand years. But the rest had to wait for the end of the millennium before they were raised, and they were raised at the great white throne. Now what is this great white throne? It's the place where works are done. And therefore we've said that be, that means the poor, ungodly, wicked world. But the poor, ungodly, wicked world can't be judged according to their works. For all their works are all the same character. Now then, come back to the, the seven churches. In every one of the seven churches, him that overcome it is addressed. And in every one of the seven churches we have this refrain, I know thy work, I know thy works. I know thy works. This is not salvation, this is works. And it says the books were opened. Two sets of books. The books were opened and they were judged according to their works and if their name wasn't in the book of life that means to say that they hadn't come up to the standards they were among those who had never overcome they had to go through an awful experience. Now that leads us back again to this question of the second death. Will you turn with me to the Is it the epistle of Jews? You remember when we were reading in 1 Corinthians 3 and uh, 9, especially in chapter 9 and 10, our attention was taken back to the condition of the people of Israel in the wilderness. How they were all saved, all baptized into Moses, all passed through the Red Sea, partook of the spiritual meat and drink, but with many of them not well pleased, and they died in the wilderness. You Remember that. Well, here's another case, Jude. Verse 5. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though ye once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them to believe not. Now, what I'm wanting you to notice is that word afterward is the word second. You could, if, if if that's a correct translation, you could come to the Book of Revelation and say the after death. What do you mean? You say, "Ah, oh, well, that's opening up a new story." Supposing we could imagine natural death as two lines like that, you see. That's before all men, whether they're good, bad, or indifferent. Now then, this is before a natural death takes place, this side. Here's the Apostle Paul, listen to him. He says, I die daily. I die daily, he says. What's that? That's a martyrdom. He said, I bury my body the dying of the Lord Jesus. This is what he says concerning himself. Oh, he mentions quite a number of places. He says, in deaths after. I have the senses of death in myself. You read the number of passages where he says that his experiences were well, that he was dying before the time. Dying for Christ's sake. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. You see? Well now that man has the premature death long before death touches him. When death touched him at the end of his course, it was simple. He was all right. He finished his course. He kept the faith. Henceforth, a crown, Nero. Do what you like. You can't stop me," said Paul. Now you take the other man. He comes to the end of his life, but he's been unworthy. He hasn't endured. See, Jude is writing in that for that terrible time. This awful epistle. Some of the things that are said concerning this very thing. Now then. If you haven't died with Christ experimentally as a believer suffering for truth's sake you may have to have an afterwards. The second death may be the after experience. But did I tell you just earlier that it was the keys that Christ had for he won't lock them up forever. But they may have to taste. Oh, that's another passage that comes to your mind, is it? Our Saviour introduced in Matthew the 16th chapter a new statement that those who were his disciples and followed him should bear the cross, take up the cross. And then he said, that the Son standing here, who shall not taste of death, till they see the Son of Man come in his kingdom. And he took Peter, James and John up into a mountain and was transfigured before them. And Peter said, we were our witnesses of his majesty. Christ hasn't come yet. But he said, "You see, I'll give you that glimpse, pathetically, before ever you taste of death. It doesn't mean dying. Taste of death means different. It means bearing the cross. It means a martyrdom. But before ever they had the touch of the cross, they had a glimpse of the crown. Oh, that's characteristic all the way through. So we have this little word afterwards that we may have to consider. And then you you remember the insistence upon the test by fire and the suffering of loss." in 1 Corinthians 3, to those who were believers? Well, here's fire. It doesn't say, you shall not be consigned to the second death. You shall not be hurt of it. So there's a difference. It's one thing to be swallowed up in the like a fire completely and forever. Oh, that's not said here, you shall not be hurt of the second death. And the way in which it seems to to me, As though you can imagine a believer who is now standing accepted in the Beloved, but there are certain things that he cannot take through into eternity with him. Those things which belong to the slips and the failures and the things which he hasn't done. Well, wouldn't that believer say, Oh Lord, is there no way whereby these could be got rid of? Have I got to walk about the little spots and patches all over the glorious roads forever? No, you see. Just pass through the fire. You're dressed in asbestos. I've given you that. And won't you be glad when everything which is of the flesh is shriveled up and gone forever? That seems to be the test of fire. But you lose a little bit because you've got no crown. In spite of the fact you've lost a little. Well now, the last thing we've got to do is to look at these dreadful things that we have indicated in Revelation 21. Look at verse 8. Because this is a puzzle, isn't it? You may say, me, you're not going to tell me that all this list of things can possibly describe a believer. Well, let's have a look. I mean, just let those scriptures speak to us, shall we? The fearful. Now that word only occurs about two or three times in the whole of the New Testament. And I'm going to turn you to the one passage which bears upon this particularly. Second Timothy, chapter one. Or oh, would you say, wait a minute, Paul is writing to Timothy. Yes. He's writing to a fellow servant. Yes. He's writing to someone and he's going to speak about winning a crown. Yes. And he says in verse 2, in uh, chapter 2, verse 5, If a man also strive for masteries, yet is he not crowned, except his tribe lawfully. He's warning him. And in chapter 2 he says, verse 11, If we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. Supposing we don't suffer. Well, if we deny him, he will deny us. What of? love? No. Crown? He cannot deny himself. Next Thursday, and then it says in chapter 4, I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith, henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love is appearing. Do thy diligence to come shortly unto thee, for dinner. Here he is, forsaken me. Here's the one who failed. Now, what's all that got to do with the word fearful? Here it is, chapter 2, verse 1. Verse 6, Wherefore I put thee in remembrance, that thou stirred up the gift of God, which is in thee, by the putting on of my hands. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, cowardice. That's the word. So the word is addressed to a believer, not to an unbeliever. And when you read it again in the Gospels, it's it's because they were fearful in the outbreak of the storm. It's a a word that's used of the believer. And when you come to put yourself in imagination into the day of tribulation, such as never was and never will be, when you're dominated by this terrific anti-Christian dictator, the Mark of the Beast, all the perils with which you'll be surrounded, is it any wonder that some draw back? Some have drawn back before, some will draw back then. So the fearful can be a dreadful label to a person who is a child of God. I wonder whether anybody in this meeting would dare to stand up and say, never, throughout the whole of their Christian experience, could it ever be said that they were fearful. You know, if you said it, some of us would wonder whether you were telling the truth. We all know the possibility. And it's wise that we should. Well, now, what about the next one? I oh, you say, well, now I've got you properly this time because this says unbelieving. Well, you can't have an unbelieving believer. Is that so, friends? Oh, well, let the Scripture speak because that would be a bit more emphatic than I can. Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. Are we speaking to believers? Wherefore, holy brethren. Well, I have an idea that anyone who could be called holy brethren, they're believers, wouldn't you? Yes. And partakers of the heavenly calling? Oh, yes, they must be. All right. Verse 12. Take ye, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief, So a believer is addressed and warned that he might sometimes have an evil heart of unbelief and he's back again in Israel in the wilderness, failing to go into the promised land. So that's 1 Corinthians says the, the same thing, Hebrews says the same thing. Same idea. You may fall, although you never go back to Egypt. You may not go on as far as you should go. You may not like the Caleb and Joshua who last right through the time and triumphantly go into the land that winning of the crown element. Well there you have the possibility of a believer having a heart of unbelief. And what about this word abominable? Well you read it in verse twenty seven and there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination, or make it a lie but they which are written the Lamb's book of life, the overcomers. Because the abomination is the title given to the great uh, Gentile dominion, summed up, visualized in Nebuchadnezzar's image, and summed up at the end as the abomination of desolation. And anyone who receives the mark of the beast, anyone who associates himself for any reason with that awful thing, is abominable. Well, then we take another one. Supposing we missed some of these dreadful ones. I'll give you a whole list in a minute. But, uh, what about this word murderer? Uh, you, you don't mean to tell me you may say that murderers is a thing that you could just say to a Christian. Uh, would you say to uh, a Christian, now of course, uh, uh, don't commit any murders, will you? Well, you wait a minute. Just look at the way in which it's written by Peter. Chapter 4. And before we read this, would you think of writing to anybody today and say, look, don't be a busybody and don't be a murderer, would you? Or oh, you say, well, I don't seem to be fixed. No, you see, that's because we don't quite know the circumstances in which these people were placed and the possibilities of the human heart who are believers. So now 1 Peter 4, b- verse 14. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. So he's speaking to people who can glorify Christ and share in his suffering. But he doesn't seem to say, but of course I can't say this to you. He says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer. Oh, I say, I, I don't think I could have, I would like to write to anybody today and say that because it doesn't seem congruous. But you put it there. Murderer. A thief. An evil doer. Or a busybody. What well, if you say, ah, oh, well, that was Peter, of course, uh, but I'd like to know something about what Paul said. Well, alright. Paul. Galatians. And if this list I'm going to read to you isn't about the same as the book of the Revelation, it's very, very near. Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. It doesn't say that they won't be saved, but they shall not inherit the kingdom of God in his wonder And if you don't believe that, Turn to Ephesians, uh, but you say, but surely, surely, you're not going to find a whole list of these awful things in Ephesians. Friends, we are. So it's coming home to us a bit then. Chapter 5. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love, as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling in favour, You can't have it plainer that you're dealing with believers who are redeemed. Then the very next words but, fornication, and all uncleanness, all covetousness, let it not be once named among you, as becometh saints, neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather the giving of thanks. For this ye know, that no warm nor unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, Hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God? So it's right bang in Ephesians. It's almost the same list as in the book of the Revelation. So what are you going to do about it? You've got to face it. That is one more point. You notice the way in which he puts it in verse 5. Hath any inheritance? in the kingdom of Christ and of God. He doesn't say he won't have life or salvation, but he won't have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Why did he put those two names together? Will he say you are asking a lot of questions, aren't you? But that's the way to find out. Will you come back to Revelation 20 and see whether you, you can see what I'm driving at? Verse 6. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the former resurrection of these two, on such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ. See the two together? And that's the only time when they come like that. In Ephesians it puts it Christ and of God, and in Revelation it puts it the other way around, God and of Christ. But you say, what do you learn from that? Well, Romans the 8th chapter says, um, let's get the actual wording, Romans the 8th chapter says, If children, verse 17, if children, then heirs. Heirs of God. Every child of God is an heir of God. Right, that's so far. And joint heirs with Christ if so be that we suffer with him. You see, our punctuation won't allow that. But there's a distinction. You're an heir of God if you're a child of God. You're a joint heir with Christ if you suffer with him. Then he goes on to say, that we may also be glorified together, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which were revealed in us. This is the suffering in view of the glory. This is not merely just believing. This is enduring and suffering and prize-winning reward or crown. Well, it seems to me, if you can take all these together and keep it in your mind as you read Revelation 19, 20, 21 and 22, Instead of thinking of a general judgment at the last day for all the wicked that have, have ever lived, remember it's focusing all the time upon him that overcometh or the alternative. And the alternatives are in the churches, addressed to the churches before ever you get to the last. The second day, the blotting out the book of life is addressed to the churches, and you must keep it addressed to the churches when you get to the actual state of affairs Otherwise, you're doing despite to the teaching of truth. Well now, we have in front of us <coughs> one or two more considerations before we can honestly say we have traversed the teaching of Scripture with regard to the pre Roma. You notice I said traversed because every verse and every chapter in a book from one end to the other is practically a con- contribution to it, but we've taken stride. Now in front of us, there is still the question about the new heaven and the new earth, to get in its right focus. And then, either before or after, I want to go through the parallelism between these three kings Saul, David and Solomon. So they come in sequence in their history, and they come in sequence in their prophetic forecast. And then we shall have to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 24 to 28, when it says, Then cometh the end. And by the time we've done that, there's a good many of us say, well, we're just about ready to go back to the beginning and start all over again so that we can pick up so many of the friends that have been left. Well, we'll have to wait and see.